Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, lovely divers. It's great to be back in the studio to chat about some more new releases. One of your books I've been really, really keen to read, Mm. so I can't wait to hear what you thought. So today we've got the books in our theme. We've got a couple of bookish items of news. Mm. Uh, We've been diving into a few non-bookish things, and I think we'll start off with some correspondence. I just wanted to mention that we've had um, some lovely messages from Jane at Jordan Baker. She asked if we had ever read any or talked about any John Boyne books because she had recently finished reading The Heart's Invisible Furies, which is just the most wonderful book. book. And someone had given her or recommended her his new one called The Echo Chamber, and she said it was hilarious and very much a book for our times. So I referred her to our episode uh, 14 mm-hmm. where we did discuss another John Boyne book uh, and so I think she's going to search that one out. So And hilarious isn't something I normally associate with John Boyne. No. So, um, um, I think it's very much about the echo chamber of social media mm, and that sort of mm, thing. How interesting. So, yeah, I think, I think it would be really worth a look. So, so that was fun corresponding with her about mm. that. She's a great supporter, Jane. Yes, she is. And then I was just going to kick off with, I just wanted to talk about a book that I have recently finished because I just loved it. It's called Anything But Fine by Tobias Madden. And I was just so delighted when I saw that Tobias had written a novel because I've collaborated with Tobias at Bloomsbury and uh, he invited me to do a takeover of the Bloomsbury Instagram account a couple of years back. It was such a lot of fun and I I think I took their Instagram over for about three or four days, something like that. I did quite a few posts and he's just a really lovely guy and I feel like he really gets me and he, he knows what sort of books I like. And it's quite interesting because his book, his novel, has been published by Penguin Random House. Oh. Yeah. And I was, I've given a bit of thought to this. I haven't spoken to him about it, but I imagine that that's not a bad thing no. is to not have no. your employer be also your yes. publisher. <laughs> it was quite an interesting thing to Maybe they have a policy that yeah. they don't. Mm. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense yeah, when you does. think about it. So he's written a young adult novel and it's excellent. It's the story of Luca and he's a year 11 Australian boy. He's living in Ballarat and he's a very gifted ballet dancer. Uh, Luca has hopes of auditioning for the Australian Ballet School and becoming a professional ballet dancer and he's been dancing since he was about three. He works incredibly hard at his craft and then he accidentally falls down some stairs and seriously damages his foot 
and his life changes in an instant. Mm. He completely, he breaks every bone and tears every tendon and every nerve and fibre, completely damages it and has to have surgery. And then this is the story of what happens over the next not quite a year and it's just so good. So Luca is gay and everyone around him is is very cool about that. Mm. Uh, he lives with his dad as his mum died when he was very young and he has a group of female friends who do ballet with him who are also extremely good ballerinas and they have a group chat called Bunheads for Life <laughs> and, and they seem like a really fun mm. group of friends. They've been together since they were little tiny toddlers and they've all got this shared passion for ballet. He doesn't have many male friends. Mm. Uh, He attends a private school in Ballarat on a dancing scholarship and this accident and the damage that he does to his foot have serious consequences in every area of his life. And it's just such a beautiful story. It has a lot of heart. Mm. It's very heartwarming. I felt so protective of Luca. There are some awful friendship issues that arise as a result of this. There are some big unwanted changes and Luca has to reevaluate everything, who he is if he isn't a ballerina, mm. who his true friends are and what he wants in life. One of the main storylines is, is, is that he meets a guy that he really falls for and the story of what happens there is just really good. It's really well done. It's got lots of ups and downs and it's really interesting and really rang true for me. And there's the most beautiful character named Amina, who's a young girl in his school who wears a hijab. And she is just adorable. She's dealing with some very difficult parental expectations, but she is just the most darling sweetie and you just absolutely love her she's gorgeous so I would really recommend this to not just young adult readers but anyone if, you know if you want to read a great story Tobias is a really talented writer he has been a dancer and I think he did grow up in Ballarat he's been uh, in Cats and Singing in the Rain and all sorts of musicals and things and I can see this book actually helping a lot of people yes, yes, I was just who thinking that. might be struggling mm. with who they are, but mm. particularly a lot of young people. And young men. Young men are just, mm. not just gay men, but, you know, because there's a lot of issues that this covers in that year 11, year 12 stage of life and he absolutely nails it. So I, th- I think That's it's... like a really contemporary... Really fresh contemporary, read. fresh yeah. and really positive not too cheesy, like really very realistic, mm. but he absolutely got the balance right. It was it's really good. So that was anything oh, but fine that. by Tobias Mann. And I love that title, anything but fine. Yeah. How many times have you said to someone, "No, I'm fine. I'm yeah. fine." Yeah. <laughs> anything any, but and fine anything is a but, brilliant yeah. title. I know it's so good. So we've got our theme today, which is more new releases because we're just so many and we can't get enough of them. So. <laughs> How about you kick us off with your first one, Lou? Yes, okay, I'll do that. So the first one I want to talk about today, and as we always say with these new releases, I can't really say a huge amount about it, is Diana Reed's Love and Virtue, which is published by Ultimo Press. This is Diana Reed's debut. She wrote this book when COVID-19 apparently closed down a theatre production she was working on, and it's a great book. It is a classic campus novel which has drawn comparisons with Donna Tartt and Sally Rooney. And the book's 
prologue opens with a sentence, which I'm just going to read. In a basement bar on a university campus, a boy and a girl hold each other, their limbs loose with alcohol. Ooh. Mm. It's orientation week, and the book does not shy away from all the orientation tropes, the drinking, the drugs, and the sex, you know, reminiscent of the experiences many young people have when they leave home and they are, I suppose, experiencing freedom, some of them for the first time. But, of course, as we know, it's an environment that has been, you know, exposed as often being especially toxic. So Love and Virtue is the story of Michaela. Um, she leaves her mother in hometown Canberra to go to university in Sydney. The university isn't identified, but it doesn't need to be because it's generally representative of a very elite sandstone institution. Okay. Michaela is enrolled in an all-woman's college, Fairfax, with sort of got lofty feminist antecedents. And surprise, surprise, it's next door to an all-men's college, uh, St Thomas's. <laughs> so the book commences briefly with Michaela looking back years later upon a friendship that she developed at university with a very prepossessed and confident young woman, Eve Herbert Smith, with whom she shared neighbouring college rooms. And they also shared academic subjects in common in their first year, principally philosophy. And then the book immediately takes you back to the first weeks at Fairfax when Michaela and Eve meet and then what follows throughout their first year at university. So Michaela first sees Eve in week two when there are opportunities for students from both neighbouring colleges to, to sort of enter a performance competition. And Eve delivers a very bold and, for some people, polarising solo performance piece about female pleasure, mm. for which she wins second place. And as Michaela sort of cynically concludes she also wins a lot of desired attention as that girl because the performance is widely talked about and it's captured on iPhones as it is in these days. I'm picturing sort of a when Harry met Sally. Yes, yes, okay. exactly, yes, All right. e exactly. Physical and oral performance. You know, she's talking yes. a mon okay. monologue and she's acting it out. Oh, wow. Okay. So Eve becomes a name on campus and then uh, Michaela discovers that they are college neighbours. And the book also refers early, and this is also on the back cover, so there's no spoiler here, to a drunken encounter during O-Week, which I don't wish to give many details about. It's mentioned in the prologue without referencing who the parties involved are. And in any event, for quite some time, neither of the parties involved decide to talk about it. So Michaela also develops another friendship group at Fairfax College, separate to the friendship that she has with Eve. And these are all girls, it seems, from very privileged Sydney families. Um, they've all got upper-class names and some pretensions. Um, but Michaela, who is there on scholarship, is nevertheless included. Uh, the boys are no different. There are plenty of references to the sort of rugby-playing ex-private school boys, you know, who imbibe completely to excess and their toxic attitudes to women. And, and this raised, the book raises sort of issues not only of those individuals' toxic behaviour but also the toxicity of in institutions as well and how, how it sort of promotes toxic behaviour. In terms of her female, you know, relationships, I did momentarily sort of flinch at 
Michaela's sort of internal descriptions of how intelligent or how stupid the girls were perceived, how pretty or how long legged they were, their clothes, and sort of the assumptions that are made about the agency of those things to privilege. But in fact, what she's doing is she's she's amplifying and heightening Michaela's own experience, you know, and her it's a very relatable perspective, I have to say. Yeah. And her observations, of course, are of a social circle that she's not been part of before. Right. And she's internally comparing herself to them, which of course is what young people exactly. do. You yes. know, you know, this is it's pretty universal. This is a time when young people are trying to work out who they are mm. and where they fit in. Yeah. And they're battling their own insecurities. And it's so, a much bigger fish pond. Huge. Absolutely. For the first time. Yeah. And it's very easy to make ready assumptions about people mm. based on appearances and based on what people say, particularly in the close confine of a college. So she's reflecting for us, really, also how the young men are perceiving the women in their circle. Now, in contrast to, to that sort of friendship group, Eve does not seem to need to work out who she is at all. She's She has very strong ideas of herself. She's strong opinions and convictions. And Michaela sort of becomes as fond and as fascinated of, as Eve as she is intimidated. Now, what really made this book for me is that peppered in between this sort of very contemporary story and serious story, really, of student life and the dynamics of friendship and, and yeah. the dialogues between them, there were these sort of philosophical discussions. You know, Michaela is having this sort of internal examination of herself and her feelings of right and wrong. She's very thirsty for knowledge and she's very keen to sort of debate mores and morals. Uh, and this is partly because both her and Eve are studying philosophy. Yeah, okay. And uh, she loves to have these discussions with, with Eve and also with their philosophy professor. And so I guess really Michaela's world is opening up. And as you might have guessed from my opening comments about campus behaviour and encounters, the issue of consent looms very large in the book and it plays into the discussions of right and wrong. And, you know, as the year at Fairfax progresses, this is something about which Eve and Michaela do not necessarily agree. Oh. I don't want to give wow. a lot away there. It's obviously worth noticing uh, that mentioning that in Australia in 2019, I think there were serious investigations of the O-Week, Orientation Week practices at Sydney Colleges. I think it was events that happened in 2018, but then they produced a report. Uh, and I think the report concluded that there were uh, one in eight attempted and actual sexual assaults mm. on campus, which is just pretty mm. diabolical. I think that Diana Reid's been pretty deliberate in including sort of some moral considerations in this book because it's not as black and white as okay. we might like it to be. We often ask, is that action moral? As opposed to, is that action as moral as it can be in the circumstances? Because morality is always contextual. Yes. It's always yeah. against the backdrop of certain facts. Absolutely. So... I cannot wait to have a discussion with oh. someone about this book. I don't want to go into too much detail and give it away. I can't wait to read it now. I'm gonna, <laughs> I cannot wait to read it. I'm going um, to talk to you about it. Because, you know, I, I did have quite strong views about some of the things yes. in the book, but then 
it's more nuanced. It's than a you, lot more yeah. nuanced. Oh, so, yeah, that so it's a great, so it's, good. It is a great I've book. I've heard good things. I didn't know much about it. So, very modern yes. book of for now. Yes. Um, love it. And oh, can't yeah. wait. So, that's Love and Virtue by Diana Reed, published by Ultimo Press. Sounds so good. Mm. My first one is literally, I think, the prettiest book. Oh, how gorgeous. Oh, these I've covers are amazing. How pretty is that? It's just the most beautiful cover. It's Elif Shafak's The Island of Missing Trees. Oh, beautiful name. She is described as a Turkish slash English writer. She was born in 1971 in France. She's written many well-received books. I think she's written about 12 novels and a few non-fiction books. And this is the first book of hers that I've ever read. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. It's set alternately on the island of Cyprus in 1974 and in London in the late 2010s, so pretty recent, but pre-COVID, I guess. And uh, you might remember the Ruth Ozeki book I reviewed in the last episode, the book of form and emptiness, where the book was telling yes, half the story. Yes. Well, in this, a fig tree is telling oh, half fun. the story. And in this book, the fig tree came into the world in 1878, in the year that the Ottoman Empire ceded administration of Cyprus to the British Empire in exchange for protection against Russian aggression. And I think, honestly, Cyprus has just been a pawn and the subject of aggression prior to that and ever since. Poor country. It's just riddled with with problems. And this is the story of a young teenage boy, Costas, and a teenage girl, Daphne, one of whom is a Turkish Muslim Cypriot and the other is a Greek Christian Cypriot. And neither family will have anything to do mm. with the other sort of Cypriot. And, of course, Costas and Daphne fall in love and cannot tell anyone. So they have to find a way to meet in secret so that their families won't find out. And eventually there are two very lovely young um, men who are who own a taverna and they offer to let them, you know, use a sort of a, a room in their bar to meet up and have a coffee and, and get to know each other. And the bar is called The Happy Fig and it has this enormous fig tree that's been going since 1878 growing in the middle of the taverna. And there's also a parrot that's very similar to the parrot in Still Life, (laughs) which I thought was rather delightful. So there's been considerable enmity between the Greek Cypriots who make up the majority of the population and the Turkish Cypriots who make up only about 20% of the population. The Greeks wanted the island to become aligned with Greek rule and the Turkish Cypriots wanted Turkish rule. And in 1974, when this book starts, there was a coup d'etat and the Greek Cypriot nationalists staged an uprising and then that prompted an invasion by Turkey and all hell broke loose and thousands of people became displaced and so ultimately this story of a Greek boy and a Turkish girl is very much a doomed love story. Very Romeo and Juliet. Very Romeo and Juliet. Not the same ending but, you know, the same sort of tangled, complicated story as you might imagine. So that's the Cyprus part of the story. The London part of the story, which is the, you know, almost up to modern times, is about a young girl named Ada and her mother is Daphne and she died less than a year ago. And Daphne's husband and Ada, the teenage daughter, are living with their grief 
in in their London home. And then Daphne's sister arrives from Cyprus and Ada has never met this sister. She has never met any of either of their families. She's never been to Cyprus. She doesn't speak Turkish or Greek. So her parents have completely cut her off from their heritage. They've wiped that part of their lives. Completely wiped it. I think in an attempt to protect her. Yes. But, of course, you know, those things just don't ever last. Mm -hmm. Secrets do come to light and the truth always comes out and this sister turns up. And the reason she's able to turn up is that Daphne's parents have now both passed away and the sister feels like she can now come to visit. But Ada is quite resistant to this because she feels quite angry that the sister has never come to visit before and she certainly didn't come for the mother's funeral and has shown appeared to show no interest mm. in them. So, so she's not cross with her parents for having... She's a bit bewildered, I yes. think. There's a lot of not talking. There's a yes, lot of things okay. that are not said. Yes. And her father is a lovely man and he's doing his best. Mm. But Ada is struggling and one of the things that has happened is that she is struggling so much with her grief that she is in a class and she starts screaming uncontrollably. The teacher asks her something and she starts screaming. And then the kids, someone in the class captures her screaming on their iPhone and it goes viral. Mm. So that's a very 16-year-old issue that she's dealing with and that's just her coping with her grief and, and all the other issues that are going on. So it's a beautiful story. It opens with the father in London is burying a fig tree and the fig tree that he's burying is a cutting that he took from the fig tree in the taverna in Cyprus so that when he moved to London, he took this cutting, he wrapped it in some wet sacking, put it in his suitcase and planted it and it's growing and he's sort of burying it so that it survives the London frost. And he is a botanist and an ecologist and plants are his passion. And he's basically mm. burying his grief in, in plants and oh. trees and, and his passion in that way. So everybody's sort of very disconnected mm. from everybody and dealing in a different way with, with what's going on. And it's just a beautiful examination of all of those issues with a really interesting story that sort of circles back and you find out exactly what happened with Costas and Daphne. I thought it was really beautiful. There's a few things that I thought mm, is a bit clunky or perhaps a little bit didactic at some points where the, where she's explaining certain things. But um, for the most part, I thought her writing was beautiful. Uh, she's obviously an amazing woman and she's a very strong feminist. So all of those things come through. So I, I love oh, that it. book sounds it's beautiful. beautiful. It's called mm. The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafak. Mm, beautiful book. Mm. What was your other one, Lou? Okay, so this is quite interesting. I have been dying to read this and it was pressed on me by Tor at Colin's oh, Bookshop okay. So, and I always love his recommendations. Yeah. So, so this is Jonathan Franzen's latest book, Crossroads, which is published by Fourth Estate. It is such a big book on so many levels, so 600-odd pages, wow. you know, which is typical Franzen. He, yep. I don't think he's ever written a book mm. less than 500, which... We might have a discussion about that at some yeah. stage, maybe not today, but another stage. I've only ever read one other book by Me John, too. Jonathan Franzen. I read The Corrections. Me too. Oh, you read that? Okay. I know that he's revered by 
many, many people. I mean, you know, he's described as America's greatest living novelist and a literary genius for our time. To So there's a lot of hyperbole um, yeah. on Franzen. And, of course, there was also a lot of controversy with the corrections, principally because Oprah Winfrey picked it as her book club book and he was openly very hesitant about that and commented that some of her earlier picks had been quite <laughs> schmaltzy, so she withdrew. That's right. And it was a huge thing at the time. And he tried to make amends to Oprah by sort of describing her as highly intelligent and, <laughs> you know, lauding her Herculean efforts to get people reading, but, you know, the, the damage, damage was done. done. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he was considered as this sort of, and still is by many people, as a sort of a superior elitist white male writer uh, and a bit of a literary snob. And, you know, Oprah has only ever once on one other occasion withdrawn a selection exactly. from her book club, which is quite interesting. So, look, against the backdrop of all the Jonathan Franzen noise, I think this is still a pretty extraordinary oh, book. Oh, okay. It seems a bit simplistic to describe it as a family saga, but that's exactly what it is okay. on an epic scale, as indeed several of his other books have been. Um, it's set in the 1970s with all the sort of upheaval and politics and mores of the time, which is more than matched by the scale of the dysfunction in this family. It has been said in dispatches that this is, in fact, uh, not a standalone book. Uh-huh. It is going to be the first of a new Friends and Trilogy, which I am actually pleased about because I want to see with, what happens with this yeah, family. Yeah, okay. okay. So as an aside, Virginia, you're going to be fascinated by this. The trilogy is rumoured to be called A Key to All Mythologies, which, of course, for Middlemarch devotees was the name of Edward Casaubon's oh, doomed text. I know. It's incredible. And I'll tell you why, because we often talk... Is you that wanna... a bit hubristic? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that is a word that <laughs> completely sums him up. But, you know, and we, we've talked about this before, about whether or not we should be writing, reading books of writers that we're critical of. Yeah. I don't agree with pretty much all that Lionel Shriver has to say on many topics, but I still read her books. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and it's a d- debate, where do you draw the line? Yeah. But in this case, it's an arrogance and a hubris. So, mm. you know, anyway, but we do often talk, you and I, about the threads and the sort of small coincidences that we come across when we're preparing for the podcast. I love them. I love coincidences. So in the opening chapter of Love and Virtue, which I have just reviewed, oh. Michaela arrives at her college room with her mother to unpack when she first starts at Fairfax College. And she refers to the things that her mother has made her pack and to the things that she's wanted to pack. And her mother pulls out of the suitcase a 900-page copy of Middlemarch. Oh. And, of course, if you're going to college and you want to take your precious possessions with you, and yes. Middlemarch may indeed be one of them as a young woman. So I thought that was rather lovely. Yes, that is good. That I'd read that in Love and Virtue. I love and then it when I, that happens. Yeah, and then I read this about Jonathan Franzen. The bizarre thing is I am currently reading A History of Rain oh, yeah. by Niall Williams, mm. who wrote This Is Happiness. Yes. And it is riddled with references to Middlemarch. How incredible. Because the character, uh, Ruth, is very literary and she's working mm. her way through her father's books and so there's all these very cute little references to the Chateau and Windus and what edition and it is 
riddled with ad, uh, it's middle march and great expectations so there you go there you go see this Sorry, is sort of synergy to, no please i'm glad you've shared that time that in yeah <laughs> maybe we can call our episode you know something yes. to do with middle march yeah, yeah. Is, which is very literary obscure coincidences. literary coincidences exactly crossroads is set in a conservative midwestern town new prospect near chicago in 1971 and russ hildebrand is the patriarch of his family and he is an associate pastor at the First Reformed Church um, in that town. And we learn pretty early on that Russ has had a virtual demotion of sorts oh. three or so years earlier. Something has precipitated his removal as the leader of the congregation's youth group. Ooh. He's had his other pastoral duties increased. He has to write more sermons, which, as it happens, his wife edits for him. He has to tend a little bit more to the frail and the elderly. But the youth group, which has been renamed Crossroads, has been taken over by another pastor, a younger pastor at the church, Rick Ambrose. And the youthful members of the congregation absolutely love Rick. He's younger, he's enigmatic, he's cooler, he's hipper, and the kids respond to him. And, you know, it's sort of, I'm sure it's intended as a messianic kind of analogy, their sort of, yeah. you know, their devotion to, to Rick. But by contrast, they find Russ really irritating. They find him a bit creepy. Some of the young women have been quite outspoken because for them, he is this sort of older, white, patronising man. And this cuts Russ really, really deeply. Uh, it's something he's not properly dealt with. He smarts from it every day. You know, he perceives it as a lack of respect and the humiliation just is so real for him. It consumes him and he's driven by resentment. So his sort of shame at, at this event has sort of turned to blame and anger and he's very becomes very self-absorbed and, and it inevitably creates distance in his family relationships. He is so intent on maintaining an appearance of sort of goodness and godliness as a pastor. And so he's really quite deluded about how he's really feeling. And is it obvious to the people around him that there's this duplicity? Uh, to some people in his life, yes. Franzen has drawn these kind of really strong and authentic portraits of a family you know, of domestic dysfunction, and every member of the family is as sort of separately, vividly present in the book. So, it, you know, you, there's really, other than the youngest child who probably we will see more of oh, in of subsequent yeah. books, they're all equally, treat, you know, they're equally weighted, weighted or, in, yeah. in the book. Yeah. yeah, okay. And not everyone, of course, grows up in in an insular community like this, but there will be you know, units of family interaction between parents and sibling that everyone will recognise, you yeah. know, in, in your family life, even where your family life is way more stable than the Hildebrands. Right. I have to say it's interesting, you know, people compare Franz and to Updike and various other, you know, American writers, but for me this book really reminded me of Anne Patchett. Oh. It reminded me of Commonwealth. It reminded me of the Dutch house. You know, he takes these sort of commonplace relationships and domestic issues and, and they're kind of amplified and dissected. That's made me really want to read yeah. it, which I didn't until you said no, that. No, <laughs> well, it's just, you know, it's got all this sort of, they're quite sort of basic elements, really. Mm. You know, there's a strained marriage, yeah. there's the spectre of infidelity, there's complex sibling relationships, 
parental expectation yeah. and control, public shame. Career disappointment. Yeah, and you know, the coming of age of the children. It's all magnified 100% in a fishbowl lens of a religious community mm. where they're less tolerant of the outside world mm. and where appearances really matter. So Crossroads is a very apt title because in 1971 the nation is at a crossroads and this family and this community is also very much at a crossroad. And there's there's a universality which transcends the 1970s as well in the book. So the book moves backwards and forwards. So we learn Russ's backstory and we also learn the backstory of Mary and his wife before they met, the secrets and the suffering that she's holding on to. Marion's a great character. She's obviously suppressed a great deal of herself during the marriage. I don't want to go into too much there at all, um, but it does feel like she might explode. Oh. And Franzen has chosen to tell us Russ's backstory much, much later in the book than Marion's, and I wonder if that's because he's holding the reader to ransom a little bit over how we, whether we cut Russ any slack at all. Yeah. And I think maybe he should trust his readers a little bit more. Oh, interesting. I mean, maybe he should trust his readers a little bit more not to need to write 600 pages as well. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) There's a little bit of an element of that as well about it. The children are painted as richly as their parents and, you you know, you really become part of their interior lives and their relationships with others as well. They are as self-absorbed as their parents, but, of course, given their age, yeah, it's understandable. Yeah. Um, we forgive them a great deal. And pretty much every member of this family behaves badly towards somebody, but we reserve our harsh, harshest criticism for their father. Oh, okay. And, of course, you know, you get that creeping realisation, as children do, that, Maybe a parent that you've idolised is in fact fallible. Pre- fallible and flawed, and maybe ultimately someone you might not like at all. Oh. So Clem is the oldest child. He's now at college and he's pretty influenced by the politics of the day. I'm going to sort of give very potted descriptions here because I don't want to give anything away. He has a very close relationship or certainly did when he was living at home with his next sibling, Becky, who's a high school senior. Becky's smart. She's extremely popular. If Becky Hildebrandt's going to a party, you can be sure that lots of other people will turn up too. So she's a bit of an early influencer. Um, She fights with her mother and she's just started to apply to go to college. The next sibling in age order is Perry. I'm very fond of Perry. He's 15. He's intelligent way beyond his years. Of course, genius often comes with an oddness and a precociousness that embarrasses his siblings. And this is not a spoiler. Perry is a drug dealer. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, drugs remove inhibition. And I always think that strangeness breeds an isolation and they are both great vantage points from True. which to observe others. Being an outsider is... Yeah. It's a, it, yeah. You know, I just think Perry is a fantastic character. Wow. Tragic but fantastic. So in some respects, Perry is the truth teller in the family. He's a bit like that sort of tragic court jester. It's a bit yeah, Shakespearean. Okay. Everyone assumes he's a fool, so they don't take yeah. any notice of his wise pronouncements. Oh. And, of course, he makes pronouncements about himself as well. And then the youngest child is Judson, who shares a room with Perry, and he's probably the only member of the family for whom Perry has uh, real affection. And Franzen captures their relationship very briefly in the book, but very tenderly, really beautiful. Judson doesn't figure very much in the book quite like his other siblings, but as I said, we're likely to see a bit more of him probably if it is a trilogy. Yeah. All of the 
characters in this book falter. All of the family members falter at some stage, some to a lesser or greater extent. Nobody is listening and a crisis is inevitable and you just feel that you're rolling towards that reckoning in Mm. biblical terms. Obviously, that's a pretty brief review for a Mm. book this big, Mm. um, but... I don't want to give anything else no, away. No, no, no. I've really, really enjoyed reading yeah. it. Oh, now I won't um, read it. <laughs> I, you know, I reckon I could have edited it. <laughs> oh, look. But, you know, <laughs> thank you, Tor, for that uh, recommendation. I just loved it. I'm completely with you about the 500. So my next one is 550, I think. Could have easily had 100 pages taken out mm. of it and it wouldn't have made any difference mm. to the story. I have a little bit of a theory. When somebody kind of is referencing... Middle March. Yeah. Maybe they feel they have to write a book that's a bit that big. It's kind of part of the being a literary that they think it needs Maybe. to be a tome. I don't know. But I also do have a theory that the bigger the writer, so the, the more successful they are, yes. the less willing editors are. Yes, to take them on. To take them on yes. and say, you have to cut this. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because I did reach for the Dutch House after I'd finished this and the Dutch House is 330 pages. Yeah, that's, that's the and average it packs size. just as much. Yeah, probably. and and you know, you read between the lines. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. I think there's an element of that as yeah, well, is yeah. that I would like writers to trust their readers to understand the nuances yeah. more. And to be fair, there's a lot of dialogue in this book as well. Uh, a lot of dialogue, uh, which is great. But yeah, I'd still tell everyone to read it. Yeah, it's yeah, great. No, it sounds so fantastic. it's Crossroads by Jonathan Franz and Fourth Estate. What about you? What's your so next one? So my last one is a similar size. I think it's oh, it's actually not as big as I said. It's 485 pages. So mine is Apples Never Fall by Leanne, Leanne Moriarty. This held my attention in a gripping way the whole time. It opens with a bunch of siblings, two brothers and two sisters. They're all adult children. They're all in their 30s. One of them's almost 40. And they're sitting in a coffee shop and they're becoming becoming concerned because their mother has disappeared. They're sitting in this coffee shop, they're not ordering anything and you're looking at it from the perspective of the waitress and the manager saying, you know, can you get them to order something? And then she just can't get them to engage. They're completely, they all look identical and they're chewing over this problem and she can tell that there's some issue about their mother not being around. The mother, Joy, has sent a very odd and out of character text to her kids saying, uh, I'm going offline for a while. And then she hasn't been seen since. And how old are the children? In their 30s up to 39. Okay. There's four of them, Mm. two brothers, two sisters. And they're just debating whether they should do anything. And if Mm. they do do something, what would that be? Or should they not do anything? So then we leave the coffee shop and the days go on and Joy still doesn't appear. She's never taken herself off like this before, ever. She's never done anything like this. And her husband of more than 40 years doesn't seem to be as worried about her whereabouts as the kids. So suspicion starts to fall on him, naturally. So there are two interesting backstories in this one, and I thought they were both Really well done. Mm. The first one is that the family is a tennis family. So both the parents, Joy and Stan, were really talented tennis players. They'd set up a tennis school. 
They have a court in their backyard and they also use some local tennis courts. And so tennis has dominated Mm. their entire family, Mm. the business, uh, you know, the competitions, everything was just their whole life revolved around the tennis school. And all four children were also very talented Mm. tennis players, not surprisingly, and had played a lot of tennis when they were younger to various different levels and none of them are playing very much tennis now at all. And then the other backstory is that about six or nine months earlier, a young woman turned up at the parents' house one night out of nowhere, knocked on the door and was taken in by the parents, Joy and Stan. They had no idea who she was. I think at first they thought that she was an ex-tennis student or a friend of one of their children but they, oh, so you mean that the parents had no idea? I thought you meant the children had the no idea. The parents had oh, okay. no idea yep. who this girl was. Oh, she okay. just knocked on the door. She had a scratch on her face. She looked a bit dishevelled. She complained that she'd been assaulted by her boyfriend and that she'd got in an Uber and just ended up at their house. It's all a bit odd. Something mm. doesn't add up. The fact that they took her in. Well, they, they said, come in. Mm. They took her in. They looked after her and then she just effectively stayed. She effectively moves in. She has taken over the cooking for the parents and she's become indispensable to them. And she this continued for quite some time. She made herself completely indispensable to them. And as you can imagine, the four adult mm. children are not on board with this mm. at all. They think it's pretty weird. Whilst they themselves don't want to be living at home with the parents and doing all the cooking and and so on, they also feel like their affections have been supplanted by this girl uh, or their place has been taken in a way and they can't really understand why their parents have accepted this without question and no one seems to know anything about her. So it's a really great backstory actually. So as the police start looking into what happened to Joy Delaney, they start to realise that what they need to look into is who this girl was and whether she has anything to do with Joy's disappearance. Mm. And so you just fed all of this in sort of drips moving forward. So you you start at the point where Joy's gone missing and then you go back Mm. six months or nine months or whatever. And And so you don't quite know where they were up to with this girl who seems to have just taken over. And you just drip fed all this information. So you're just turning pages. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I just had to find out what on earth had happened. It reminds me of that story. I don't know if it was a book first, but it became a TV movie with Stockard Channing and Donald Sutherland. Yes. Six Degrees of Separation. Oh, yeah. The, the young man who turns up at the apartment yep. and says oh, he's yeah. a friend of their yep. sons and he moves yep, in. And such a great It's a sort of a similar, similar premise. Similar yeah. premise. I'd forgotten about that. Mm. I loved that movie. Mm. I think uh, Leanne Moriarty has done a great job with this. Um, each of the four adult children of the family are captured so well. I never had any trouble working out which one was which. They all look identical. They're all super tall, mm. the dark curly hair. They're, they're all very genetically similar, which is why the book is called Apples Never Fall. But she's created such distinctive individuals in each of them mm. and what they're doing with their lives and their role in the family. As as we know, all families, uh, there's the one that's a bit troubled who can never yes. seem to stick at anything and then there's the one, anyway, I'm not going to go yes. into what they do, but that's really cleverly done and very well observed, I thought. 
And I thought she also really nailed the description of the long marriage of Joy and Stan and the ups and downs of that and what had happened years ago and and some things that used to happen that nobody ever really understood and nobody ever really talked about and then they sort of stopped happening. But now that the mother's gone missing, everybody's sort of now reflecting back and thinking, was there something there that we didn't know about our dad? They, they don't want to suspect their father, mm. but the police clearly are concerned and are looking at the father. It's always the first person they go to, isn't Absolutely. the closest? Absolutely. So that was really well done. There's a very, I, I love a sort of a comic visual and there's a scene where the police go in to investigate or to interview one of the daughters who's a, an occupational therapist and there's only one chair and there's two policewomen. So the occupational therapist sits at her desk and one policeman takes the one chair and the other policeman has to go and sit on one of those balls. <laughs> I'm sort of wobbling around trying to conduct. His core is obviously not well controlled if he's falling around. Isn't that fantastic? Brilliant. I knew that you would love that, Louise, so I saved that up but for you. But you know what I love? Because I did it last week as well with one of the books I reviewed. You have just said there's a scene Yes. And we've start, that started to creep into our language with books yeah, because yeah. we're just visualising we them. We see it that you know, way. Particularly with Leanne Moriarty yeah, because yeah, a lot of her yeah. stuff becomes television. Yes. Though. And I have heard some people say, oh, yeah, this it's really very obviously written to be made well, into a movie. And I can see it would make a great yes. movie. But I thought it made a great book yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed yes. it. Uh, so that was Apples Never Fall oh, by excellent. Leanne Moriarty. <laughs> I love that. Now, next item, bookish item. Do you, yes. do you want to go first? I don't though? mind. Yes, I'll go you first. Go. Yep. So I just wanted to mention something very, very briefly, which some of you may already know about. In fact, I'm sure you, lots of people know about it. Something that appeared in the news, Gus, my husband, drew my attention to it. And it's the huge prize of a million euros that the females... Wow. Yeah, it's a huge prize, isn't it? It's for the Panata literary prize and it's won this year by a female Spanish writer called Carmen Mola uh, for her novel The Beast which is due to be released in early November. Now it's been revealed that Carmen Mola is a pseudonym which is not such a unusual occurrence no. perhaps a little bit more today than in past times but it's been revealed that the real author is in fact a trio of men. <laughs> Um, and the award was announced at a ceremony, so, you know, nowhere to hide. And three script writers for television, I believe, Augustin Martinez, Jorge Diaz and Antonio Machero, went on stage. Oh, and so then, they weren't trying to hide No, this. they went on stage and they announced that they were the writer, which must have been quite a shock for some so of the people involved. No, No. Now, there's been a lot of commentary about this, you know. I haven't so seen many this. People I don't have know how this me by. <laughs> well, Carmen Moller previously uh, has published a trilogy with a very strong female lead. I think it's the Inspector Elena Bianco trilogy. Elena Bianco is a solitary female inspector. And so the main criticism isn't that they used a pseudonym and it isn't the gender. It's that they have created sort of a fake female profile of Carmen Moller. Oh, so on the book does it say Carmen Moller is a yes, they've said woman that she's a, she's a university in... professor living oh in Madrid. My, oh, my God. <laughs> and there's a photograph of a woman with her face turned oh. away from the camera adjacent to the description of Carmen Moller. That's that fantastic. Obviously doesn't say this is Carmen Moller, but, but you know, every... the implication yes. is clear. Yes. And also 
and I don't quite, I haven't got to the bottom of this yet. I've still got some investigative to do. She's given lots of interviews, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure how the interviews. Well, well often they send out a list of questions, questions. and you answer them yes, and send them so, back, especially during COVID. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's been quite a lot that's gone on there. We've talked about doing some scandals. Literary, sca- literary know, scandals. Literary scandals. So this is, I think this is a great one. You know, so there's a lot of critics in uh, and gender equality groups who've, you know, referred to them as scams. And as I say, it's it's not the pseudonym. It's the fact that they've sort of created this profile of a female author, which is false. So that's And when I think about literary scandals, I think that's the the little liminal space that does make people annoyed. Mm. So if you think about the ones that we know of, it's where there's been some sort of either elaboration on the mm. truth mm. <laughs> or a complete mistruth, I'm not going to name anyone, no. about the author and their capacity to tell this story. Yes. I think that might be where yes. it fits. And then the deceit associated with that Perpetuating that to that, the yes. author, to the reader. Yes. Yeah. So the um, Memoirs of a Geisha yes. by, is it Arthur Godden? Yes. I remember being very annoyed with the publishers on that one because my book on the back cover, I actually didn't keep the book because I was Mm. so annoyed about it, but it certainly (laughs) certainly implied that it was Mm. written by an Mm. actual geisha and as Mm. you read it, you realised this is not at all. Yeah. So it's a fascinating area. It is fascinating because, again, back to love and virtue, it's not black and white. No. Uh, there's a lot of nuance involved. And in it, it also comes back to the American dirt issue yeah, of who gets to tell stories. Who gets to tell the stories and, and the appropriation of identities yeah, and yeah. versus imagination yeah, versus yeah, yeah. And storytelling. People were allowed to write about whatever yeah, they were reinventing, to write about. That. Reinventing yeah, characters. Yeah. Um, oh, that's absolutely yeah, no, fascinating. So it's really, really interesting. So anyway, I'm going to delve a little bit deeper and into I'm that And I'm sort one. of surprised that, when they were invited to, you know, they might have been a finalist to win this million yes. do- million euro prize, that the, the publicists or the agent didn't write back and say, you know, Juan, John and Steve will be attending the, the ceremony or anything like that. Like the, yes. There was well, no... Um, Desire to well, foreshadow. They, they must have had people in on in on the secret for a start. They must have had a team that was in on the secret. And what is it that's tipped the scale? Yes. Is it the money that means yeah, that they that they price. decided to out? Is it the current climate that they thought that the publicity would sell the book? Yeah. The publicity of the three of them. A bit like a bank ripping his painting yeah. in the middle of yeah. the auction. I mean, it, was it going to ensure that yes. they got some international coverage? Which is possibly worked. Well, I'm sure <laughs> We're it's all worked. talking yeah. about now. So, oh, yeah, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated in it as well. Wow. Watch this space. What about you? What bookish news do you have? Uh, I just thought I would recommend an article that appeared in the New York Times magazine called Who is the Bad Art Friend? Mm, And it's just the most fascinating story. Just very, very briefly, there were two women in a writer's group um, who had known each other for, you know, a reasonable period of time and one of them decided to donate a kidney, but not to anybody. It was one of those chains, mm. so she did not know who was going to be the ultimate recipient of her kidney. And it's something that doctors have started doing where they'll get compatible matches and 
there might be sort of six or seven kidneys exchanged so that various matches match yes. up. So she, I think she does now know who the recipient was, but she didn't at the time. It was just a, an act that she decided to do. But she created a, a Facebook group to sort of update all the writers' group about it and, and tell a lot of people the progress of it. And one of the women in the writers' group who had seemed to be very disinterested in this woman's kidney donation, then wrote a short story about this uh, that was not at all kind about uh, the kidney donor. And the the short story is called The Kindest, which is what the kidney donor used to sign her emails with, Kindest Dawn. And it's ended up in court. Quite a storm. Because the writer... Uh, used part of a an email. I, I'm only giving a very brief summary mm. of it. And the interesting thing to me was that all of the people in the writers group had their group texts <laughs> subpoenaed and all their bitchy comments <laughs> were captured for the world to see. Um, there should be more of that, I think. <laughs> so it's such an eye-opener. It's such an interesting story and it really does make you ask, who is the bad art friend? Mm. It's really worth a read. Mm. So, um, yeah, no, I'm fascinated I by would that. Re- recommend looking that one up because it's fascinating. Somebody is surely going to do a podcast. Yeah, they will. But given that it's become litigious, I you have to wait. I would be a bit careful yes. about that. I would say, mm. but yeah, I don't know. What else have you been diving into recently? Uh, look, I'm always behind the the times with television. So I have been binging Ted Lasso, which I absolutely love. Um, I love the sort of the meeting of the British and the American sensibilities. I just, I've really loved that. And I did also binge Nine Perfect Strangers, speaking of Leanne Moriarty, the Nicole Kidman. I've heard not great things Look, about that one. I, yeah, so did I, but I actually then was pleasantly surprised. Oh, okay. I love Melissa McCarthy in it. I think she's fantastic in it. And yeah. it's a sort of different kind of role for her. Mm. You can almost see that she's trying to, you know, the comedic part is sort of trying to come out Oozing a bit more. Out yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's a lovely, very appealing character that she plays. I, I, I didn't take it. I mean, people, you know, people have been making very personal comments about Nicole Kidman, but no, I, I actually really yeah, quite enjoyed okay. it and, right. and I would certainly tell people to watch it. Yeah, okay. But I also wanted to mention something that I have just devoured, which came out in October. October the 11th uh, was the 30-year anniversary of the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas oh. as a Supreme Court justice in the US. And I remember 1991. Yes. I remember where I was. I remember watching some of the footage on television. And there is a new podcast called Because of Anita. And uh, the two podcasters are Salamisha Tille and Cindy Levy. One a black woman, one a white woman, bringing their personal and different perspectives to the podcast. One of the episodes is a really, really warm and interesting discussion between Dr. Christine um, Blasey Ford and uh, Professor Anita Hill. Wow. Um, That's the third episode. It's just four episodes. That sounds so good. I'm wondering actually if there are more episodes coming. I'm not sure. I've listened to four episodes and you hear all of Anita, well, a lot of Anita Hill's testimony as well. 
I mean, it's just extraordinary. Is it interesting what to, she was to put hear through. it with 2021? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. with the lens that mm. we've all been through, uh, yes. Although I remember feeling quite strongly about it yeah, at the time. Too. And oh, the questions that... And what's one thing I hadn't appreciated, well, there's a couple of things. I, of course, did not appreciate and could not appreciate at the time the ripple effect that this would have yeah. for black women. Yeah. Of which there have been very many positive things as well. I mean, at the time, I just saw it as this terrible, yep. lurching, negative thing. So it's very interesting to yes. hear from black women who, okay. you know, were listening to Anita mm-hmm. Hill at the time. The, the other thing which is really quite shocking is how many of the senators who questioned her clearly believed her oh. but were trying to diminish the effect of what she was right. saying. Oh, so wow. they were saying things like, oh, he mentioned breasts. Big deal, you know. Okay. But that's not oh. such a bad word, you know. Okay. So, oh, the, so on the one hand they were trying to say you're a hussy, you're lying, uh, you, you can't be believed. But actually in their questioning they were revealing, well, okay, so he said that, what's the big yeah, deal? So it's sort of gaslighting, yeah, which, which wasn't called back then. It was not called gaslighting. Oh. And look, you know, really... Also, the questions over Joe Biden, who was the chair of the committee at the time. And also just to look at what's happened since and the fact that not much has changed. No. Look, it it is really interesting. There's a a lot there that, of course, I just did not appreciate at the time. Wow, I cannot wait. Um, And they interviewed Kerry Washington, who played Anita Hill on the screen, and she reflects on her Democratic parents and how her family were divided in their views at the time. And so... Really, really interesting. I can really recommend it. It's called Because of Anita, and it's a very recent podcast. That sounds so good. Mm. What about you? I just have a podcast that I was going to mention. It's called A Slight Change of Plans with Maya Shankar. Maya is a cognitive scientist, and she was a gifted violin player as a child. She attended Juilliard School, and she was invited to be tutored by Itzhak Perlman, Mm. which just gives you an idea of how how good she must have been, until she injured her hand and was no longer able to play to that level. Like your ballerina. So, yeah, we're full of literary coincidences today. Lots of little links because in a similar way she had to completely re-examine who she was, what it was she loved about violin Mm. and what what she could do going forward and and what she could use to replace it and all sorts of interesting things. So this is a a podcast where she interviews various people. I've only started, so I've only listened to a few, but I'm going to I can see I'm going to devour them all. She interviews various people about events in their lives that have brought great change. Mm. The episode that I really loved is her interview with Adam Grant about changing our minds. And, in fact, changing other people's Mm. minds, which is very topical. A little bit like you were just mentioning about the Kerry Washington and the family being Mm. divided. There's a discussion here about divided families Mm. when you've got people with a fixed view about something. So Adam Grant talks a bit about imposter syndrome, which I enjoyed because I've got a bit of a a view about that. I'm not really a fan of people complaining about imposter Mm. syndrome. I think... Imposter syndrome is a good thing and we Mm. should, you know, when you're young and you're new uh, and you don't have a lot of expertise, you should feel a bit of Mm. uh, uncertainty about what what you're doing because that's what drives you 
to learn more, up your competence mm. and work harder to overcome your lack of experience. Mm. And it's universal. But anyway, that so that was an interesting um It's been hijacked discussion. a bit as a phrase though, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah. 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 And I, I just find it a bit annoying. Mm. And Adam Grant also has a very interesting theory where he thinks that sometimes very, very smart people are harder to get to change their minds because they've had so much feedback all their lives that they're right. <laughs> uh, and so they might be, some of them might be mm. unwilling to accept mm. that they're wrong. That's just something he's encountered. But the conversation between the two of them is fascinating. And there's a point where she says to him, how would you go about it if we're we're going to Thanksgiving dinner and there's the the uncle with the views that are, you know, that are really mm. repellent? And he says, this isn't hypothetical, is it, Maya? <laughs> sort of joking. <laughs> And, of course, you know, there's so much of this in America and perhaps to a bit of a less extent here in Australia. So what I found fascinating was she says, well, you know, and I've got this uncle who says these things at Thanksgiving and normally I just, you know, eat and run and get out of there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this year I'm going to try and implement some of your techniques. And he, the first thing he says to her is, what is, what is it you're trying to achieve? And I thought, gosh, that's Mm -hmm. such a foundational question. You know, what is it you're trying to achieve makes you really stop. It does. And then he asks her quite a few more questions before he gives her advice. So I highly recommend their conversation. Mm -hmm. I thought it was just fascinating and uh, something that we could all probably apply. It's really good and very Mm -hmm. interesting. And she is so smart. And there's a moment where she says something really clever and he is quite taken aback. But I just, I've gone goosebumpy just remembering it because he's he's sort of speechless. That they can both still surprise each other with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with yeah their thinking, it's a which really is good really conversation. Special. Really, yeah. They're really clever people, but with a, um, you know, they're not trying to be mm. too witty or show off. They're mm. actually both trying to find ways to make our communication mm. healthier and better mm. and more open and more engaged. So their motives that are really good. really good, it's, Virginia. Yeah, really, mm. really good. So I'd recommend that one. I'm going to be listening to lots more of those. And then just before we go, I thought I'd just remind everyone that we've got our book club. Yes. Uh, we're going to be discussing The Lincoln Highway by Amor Towles. Uh, it's a big book. I, <laughs> I, I might make an exception for my, um, my criticism of big books when it comes to Amor because... He can do what he likes, Mm. as far as I'm concerned. So we're going to be discussing that in our episode, which will go to air in uh, very early December. So you've got a good month to get your hands on a copy and read it and maybe make a start on it. So I'm really looking forward Mm. to that. And that's it for us today. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. We'd love to hear from you if you've read any of these books. We'd love you to tell us what you thought and whether you enjoyed them or if you had a sort of a different take on them from us. And uh, we'll be back again soon for some more bookish chat. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in, breaking up, shaping up.
Everything I 